Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. The cherry blossoms are coming early to Washington, D.C., which means that our semi-annual rerun of my favorite interview is also coming early. It's safe to say that Naoko Abe's 2019 book turned me into a veritable Sakura obsessive. So if you need to brush up on cherry tree trivia to wow your friends and family this spring, look no further than this interview. On my bike ride to work today, I passed probably 100 cherry trees. Pink ones, white ones, big ones, ones that look like weeping willow trees. According to the National Park Service, we are less than a week from peak bloom in D.C., Stage four, peduncle elongation, which means absolutely nothing to me except that the streets are now pink and white and I love it. Wild blossoming cherries are native to a huge swath of land, from the British Isles and Norway to Morocco and Tunisia. But they're most associated with Japan, where the sakura is the national flower. But nowadays, you'll find blossoming cherries everywhere, on practically every continent, including on my ride to work. And for that, we really have a lot of dedicated botanists to thank, who braved world wars and long sea voyages and repeated failures to spread the blossoming cherry tree around the world. But there's one botanist in particular that we can thank, Collingwood Ingram, known as Cherry Ingram for his defining passion. Japanese journalist Naoko Abe has written a new book, The Sakura Obsession, about how this English eccentric saved some of Japan's most iconic cherry blossoms from extinction. At the turn of the 20th century, the country was covered in pink clouds from a cloned cherry variety called Somei Yoshino, the Tokyo cherry. But some rare and spectacular varieties, which had become iconic in Japan's history, had disappeared entirely. Naoko Abe joins us from her home in London to tell us more about how Collingwood Ingram saved Japan's cherry blossoms. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. So as I said earlier, I live in Washington, D.C., and I've never lived in a place that lacked cherry blossoms. So I feel like I have an affinity for them. But in Japan, that affinity is on a whole other level. And your book is as much a history of the Sakura's role in Japanese culture as it is a story about Collingwood Ingram. So can you talk about your own experience surrounded by cherry blossoms, both in Japan and England, and how you stumbled upon Collingwood Ingram's story? Right. In Japan, things start in April, like school starts in April and new recruits start new jobs. And so every new stage of my life, every new step of my life, you know, like beginning with the nursery school, high school, university, and then a new job, it was always with cherry blossoms and taking photos and having parties uh, called hanami. The whole country, literally the whole country, people gather under the cherry blossoms and then eat nice food and then drinks and alcohol and singing and it's quite loud. It's very loud actually. <laughs> but it's short. One weekend is a peak and then probably that's, that's it. So it's a week to 10 days. So it's very short. And it's, in retrospect, it's a kind of being here for a long time. It's a kind of a strange phenomenon that the whole country is partying. <laughs> but having come here in 2001, every spring, the cherry season is long, prolonged, precisely because there are so many different varieties of cherry blossoms. 
So it continues for two months, about two months from the mid-March, usually mid-March to mid-May. So I was puzzled. <laughs> I was puzzled. And why is that? You know, it's, it's a totally different um, scenery and totally different experience. And a lot of Japanese residents in the UK feel the same way. But then I, I kept wondering why. And then... Um, one year, a couple of years ago, I was writing a column for a newspaper in Japan about um, different flowers and their history. And then one of them was, uh, I wrote uh, about cherry trees. And a lot of horticulturalists told me that there was this cherry crazy man at the beginning of the 20th century who who fell in love with, with the cherry blossoms and who literally brought lots of cherry trees in England, in the UK, and then spread them. He was calling good Ingram, the cherry Ingram. So it was because of him and thanks to him that the UK has so many different varieties of cherries. So how did this Englishman fall in love with cherry trees and why devote his whole life to them? Where did that start? He was a naturalist. He was born into a very wealthy family. His parents were both naturalists as well, uh, his mother loved albino birds and and she kept them in the house that the birds were flying around in the house. <laughs> also, in the garden, they had an African wildebeest. <laughs> I think they were quite eccentric. <laughs> so anyway, Collingwood grew up in this environment and because he was a frail child, he never went to school. So he, he had tutors, but his his true teacher was a nature. And initially, he was in, he was uh, he was interested in very much in uh, birds. So he became an ornithologist first. It was quite successful, but then um, what changed him really was the First World War. So when he came back, I think he was having kind of a midlife crisis, and in his diaries he confessed he's kind of fed up with the uh, ornithology that there were just too many ornithologists and there wasn't much more scope for his new research. So he wanted a new start. So by then he had four children with his wife, Florence. And so they were looking for a new house and they found a big new house in a place called Benendon, which is in the southern part of Kent. There were two cherry trees one in the back, one in the front, which attracted his attention. He really loved them. And then the next spring, they were literally smothered with blossoms. And that's when his love affair with the cherry blossoms started. So he decided to collect as many varieties of cherry, cherry trees as possible and plant them in his garden. He imported them from Japan and from the U.S., Within six years, he had more than 70 varieties of cherry trees, and he was, a, he was an authority. So by this time, as you write, Ingram had been to Japan twice already as a young man, but he hadn't been back since the end of the war and definitely hadn't been back since his cherry obsession began. So after years of building up his garden of cherry varieties, he decides to visit in the spring of 1926, and it's kind of bittersweet. It was intended as the six-week pilgrimage to all of the greatest cherry blossom sites on the islands, and he was kind of disappointed. So what did he find then that was so disheartening? 1926, yes, uh, he went with full hope 
hopes and expectations of finding new varieties and because he'd collected as many cherry varieties as possible being being in the UK he was frustrated that he couldn't get any more contrary to his expectations he was deeply disappointed because that year when he arrived at Nagasaki in Kyushu it was an unusually cold winter which delayed the blossoms but he went to Tokyo he discovered by visiting the uh, this nursery called Yokohama nursery and sat down with the uh, executives the president and and then he learned that Japanese people were no longer caring for different varieties which was a huge shock to him and then he soon found out that old varieties were disappearing this newly cultivated Somei Yoshino variety, this new cultivar was spreading like crazy since the end of the 19th century. Um, of course, Japan went through a massive change after the American Admiral Perry came. We call them black ships, <laughs> who came and um, in 1853. And they, the Japan was kind of forced to open up their, their doors because the country had been closed for 250 years. In that 250-year period, which is called Edo era, there was no foreign contact. Essentially, the country was closed. And then that was a golden time for cherry varieties. The exact number is, is unknown, but uh, probably 250 or so varieties were created during that peaceful time. But as soon as Admiral Perry came, <laughs> the country was upside down and then the samurai lords, they had to go home, go to their own domains and then civil war and everything. So the cherry trees were abandoned in their residences. And so after the new government was created, there was this new Somei Yoshino variety they grew fast and they were inexpensive and they were easy to propagate. So it fit perfectly the new government's uh, pace of modernization. So what happened was that this variety was planted everywhere. And every time the country won a major war, this variety was planted en masse, like, you know, like a thousand. Unfortunately, the cherry varieties were forgotten. And Ingram, he hadn't realised that when he was in the UK. So he was stunned and he was sad. And his diary entries uh, are very gloomy. But then he says, uh, well, luckily, the cherry trees are not that short-lived. So maybe there is still time to save them. So he decides to save them himself. <laughs> he decides to preserve whatever the varieties were still there in his Kent garden. What I find so kind of sweet about Ingram is that despite the fact that he was this extremely wealthy Westerner who traveled the world, was initially introduced to Japan through the crude Orientalism of the 19th century, he's very respectful of the 2000 years that the Japanese have been caring for the cherry trees and cultivating these hundreds of varieties. And at this point, as you say, he was only six years into his apprenticeship as a Sakura Mori, a cherry guardian. So, I mean, how did the Japanese respond to this foreigner waltzing in and diagnosing the cherry trees and telling them that things looked really dire? So there was this group of people who are leading the country 
top government officials and businessmen, botanists and Sakura Mori cherry guardians who were concerned about the uh, the state of the cherry trees. Um, they created this uh, a group called Cherry Association. So they were having an annual meeting in April every year. So they invited Ingram to give a speech. He gave a warning. Your ancestors have created these beautiful, beautiful varieties of cherry blossoms. But unfortunately, nowadays, nobody seems to care about them apart from you people, if people don't actively preserve them, in 50 years that you would have lost almost all the varieties. So he gave a start warning. How much did that warning mean? And what did the people think? I'm not sure, because I think back then the priority was... These were the business leaders and government officials, and uh, I'm sure they had concerns about the cherry blossoms, but I think their priority was uh, more on industrialization, modernization, and things like that. So, unfortunately, I think that the country as a whole didn't quite listen. I want to ask you more about the Samei Yoshino variety, the Tokyo cherry because it's taken on so much contradictory symbolism over the past century. So first it was a symbol of Japanese modernization, and then as the military grew, it became something much darker. Can you talk about what the cherry blossom began to symbolize as Japan marched towards World War II? Yeah, well, those were unfortunate years in the 1930s that the um, as Japan... Um, trotted on a, a militaristic path and, and became militar- militarily ambitious um, and expansionist took over. They needed some kind of symbol and uh, the, so that all the men were encouraged to fall like cherry blossoms, to fall for the emperor after short but glorious life to die for the emperor, to die for the country. For over a thousand years, the cherry blossoms were a symbol of primarily life and energy and and, uh, youth and um, glory. But suddenly the emphasis had shifted in the 1930s. The cherry blossom symbolism changed from the flower of peace to a flower of mass destruction. These kamikaze pilots uh, who flew to their death. A lot of them, it's stunning. Many of them wrote that now I'm going to take off, I'm going to I'm gonna be brave, um, and fall like a cherry blossoms. Of course that ideology was gone with the defeat, August nineteen forty five. At the end of the war the cherry trees literally vanished from all the cities. Um because of the uh, bombings and, and you know destruction of the whole country. But after the war, when the country started reconstruction this time, then the cherry trees were planted again, this Somei Yoshino variety. They were convenient, they were beautiful, so they were planted all over the country. And uh, this time as a symbol of New Japan. Well, at least in this New Japan, thanks to Collingwood Ingram and the efforts of his Japanese horticulturalist friends, it wasn't just the Somei Yoshino that was growing 
in the country, even though that was, of course, the most popular one. They save dozens of cherry varieties. But there's one in particular that Ingram is most known for, the great white cherry, Taihaku, which was extinct in Japan. But somehow it was still growing in Ingram's own garden in the 30s. So can you tell the story, the adventure, really, of how the Taihaku made its way back to its homeland? Yes. um, He had a friend in uh, Sussex called Mrs. Freeman, and uh, he was visiting her. She had several uh, cherry trees in her garden, which um, some of those uh, uh, Ingram didn't have. So he asked her to give him cuttings, uh, you know, which are called scions. And one of them was Taihaku, was in a miserable state. It was nearly dying, but he noticed that it had the beautiful big white blossoms and that it was a variety that he didn't have in his garden. So he said, oh, I've got to have this this variety in my garden. So he grafted it to the British native uh, tree called uh, Prunus avium. So that was in his garden, big and healthy. And he, so when he went to Japan in 1926, Mr. Isaac Hayashi took uh, Ingram to this cherry guardian called Seisaku Funatsu, an old man who was a true lover of cherry blossoms. So they were talking over green tea in Seisaku Funatsu's house about cherry trees. And then after a while, Funatsu went to another room and then came back with a scroll, which he showed to Ingram. And it had a beautiful white blossom cherry variety and Funatsu told Ingram that this was a cherry tree that my great-grandfather painted and this is a variety that we used to have somewhere near Kyoto but we don't seem to have it anymore it probably went extinct and I'm looking for it all my life and I still can't I just can't find it and then Ingram said Oh my goodness! This is uh, this is uh, the 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 one that I have in my garden. So that was Taihaku. So he promised Mr. Funatsu, "I will return this to your country." Ingram came back to Kent to the UK, and then he had a counterpart in Kyoto, Toemon Sano. So Ingram kept sending scions by ship, but. Every time it arrived, the cutting was dead. They didn't know what was what the problem was. Uh, but then finally, Toemon Sano's son said, "Ah, it's probably because the ship is going through the equator and it's too hot for the Sion to survive." So they said, "Okay, then let's ask Mr. Ingram to send Sion by Siberian train," which Ingram did, and. With Ingram's idea, he stuck them onto half of potatoes. He thought that would give enough uh, moisture and uh, nutri- as well as the nutrition. And finally, it worked. <laughs> so that was 1932. It took them five years to realize the homecoming of Taihaku. So since then, Colin Ingram was very, very happy the rest of his life. He told many, many people that how he saved this beautiful variety, and Tahaku is, is everywhere now. 
Naoko Abe's book, The Sakura Obsession, is a charming biography of the botanist you never knew you'd want to meet. If you want to feel like a know-it-all, a true smarty pants, this cherry blossom season, you'll definitely want to check it out. We have links in the show notes to photographs of all the different varieties discussed, as well as places you can visit them wherever you are. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>